Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Yes FM. You're with Kath Kovac on Women's Voices this morning. So this morning I have Samira or Sam Chowhan, and Sam is a gender historian, and um, which I think is like quite cool and um, possibly one of the more serious guests that we've had <laughs> on the show. So I thought we'd mix it up a bit. Um, how are you going, Sam? Hi there, Kev. I'm going well. Thank you for having me. <laughs> That's all right. So I met Sam very randomly in a cafe. Oh, I don't want to say it was a year ago, but it was last year sometime. <laughs> Time goes so quickly. And um, I started chatting to Sam because she very nicely offered to, well, she very nicely agreed to look after my computer when I had to run over the road to go to the loo. And... <laughs> <laughs> because I think the cafe's one was shut and you had to run into the Canberra Centre. Anyway, I had to go for a few minutes and um, Sam and I had been actually sitting together at the or sitting at the same table but not actually um, talking. And then after I asked her to look after my computer so I could go to the loo <laughs> and then came back, then, you know, we just started chatting, didn't we, and ended up talking for ages and ages about India and the uh, the research that you do and stuff like that. And then I ended, I think, by saying, hey, Sam, I've got a radio show and would you like to come on it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's some of the best uh, – that's one of the best completely random things that's ever happened to me. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. Um, no, well, it's funny, isn't it, how you can you can be with people and not, you know, interact with them at all and and then all of a sudden something will happen and you just all of a sudden start chatting. So, yes, who would know that me asking you to look after my computer for five minutes would lead to us chatting here today nearly a year later? <laughs> I know, I know, I know. But that's also credit to your personality because I think you, you just came across as an incredibly just very warm, very open person and, um, yeah. Oh, well, thank you, Sam. And so I know that you moved here um, around about a year ago. So... How long had you been in Canberra when we actually met in the cafe? Um, let's see. So I moved here in November of 2022. That's year before last. And I think we met, um, what, in August or September of last year. So I think we were just coming on to a year, maybe 10 months or something oh, of that okay. sort. Yeah. And, and what did you think of, um, what did you thought of Canberra in the time that you've been living here? Oh, it's 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 beautiful. It's it's obviously such a lovely city. I love the layout. It's very orderly. Everything feels very organised. Um, it's a bit different to what I'm accustomed to because I did come from Delhi, and uh, I, I, I guess I need say no more <laughs> because Delhi is it's a it can be it's just brimming and bustling, you know, in a lot of ways. It can. It can be nightmarish sometimes, uh, very jarring for the senses. But at the same time, I think when you're coming from that sort of um, a city that's vibrating at that particular frequency, Canberra can feel very almost too small, almost too quiet, which is not to say that it's not tranquil and it's not lovely. Um, yeah, it's nice. Nice being here, to be honest. Yeah. So I, I have been to Delhi many years ago, around about, oh, goodness, it was in the late 90s that I went with oh, a friend wow. from uh, when we were actually studying at ANU and um, we went to India for a while and, and went to Delhi. And, yeah, I the the brimming, overflowing assault on the senses is, yes, <laughs> something oh, yeah. that sounds a bit uh, familiar. Um, although I, I think I did find Delhi very slightly calmer than Calcutta or Kolkata. 
I agree um, with you, yeah. Yes, yes, which was where we landed. And I think Delhi was actually one of the last places on our trip after almost three to four weeks. Um, so by then we were just like, oh, yeah, you know, Delhi's fine. <laughs> yeah, it, it, you need to allow it a little time to grow on you. But, of course, the two cities are so contrasting. I do feel like Andhra feels um, very familiar in a strange way because I grew up as a military kid in India and we traveled over most places uh, living in I changed 10 schools, went and lived in 10 different stations with my dad, would move around very often by virtue of being uh, in the army. And we lived in cantonments, of course. And if I may say so, Canberra just reminds me of, it feels like one rather large cantonment because everything's just orderly, straight lines and uh, well-organized. So, Mm. yeah, it's reminiscent uh, in a strange way. Yeah, right. So they're sort of like little oases of of calm, might you say, in in the bubbling pot that is India. That's true, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, so interesting. And so why did you decide to actually move to Canberra, Sam? Oh, interesting. Uh, That's a story. (laughs) I was was in Delhi... um, yeah, before last. Um, this is 2021. I'm in Delhi. I'm researching, working on my PhD thesis, almost around the clock, going crazy studying. And I step out for a dinner in one evening in Delhi with my sister. And I happened to bump into this gentleman there who was doing a diplomatic posting, who was posted to India as the assistant defense advisor, the defense attache. Um, and we started, we struck up a conversation, started chatting and um, things moved on, <laughs> progressed pretty quickly. We started to date each other and six or seven months down the line, he proposed and we got married and now I'm here. <laughs> wow. Well, how's that for a whirlwind romance? That That, that is fantastic. And um yeah, so you have a bit of a, a thing for just meeting people randomly at at a few Yeah, places. I'm making a habit of it. I'm making a habit of it, aren't I? <laughs> no, I think that's beautiful. And um what is your husband's name? He is Major Daniel White. Daniel, okay. And so Daniel was is Australian? Daniel is very Australian, oh, right. okay. uh, born and raised. He's a Gold Coast boy uh, uh, in the Australian Army. We just went innocently overseas to India <laughs> uh, to do a little posting, and who knew he'd come back with some very, very lofty baggage. <laughs> I think that's beautiful. That's so romantic. I think there's a movie in that. <laughs> I think so. There might be. Or at least a book. Who knows? Oh, at least a book. At least a book. Um, maybe that's something that you could write in your spare time when you're not writing history, Sam. Yeah, that's a thought. <laughs> okay, so speaking of history, um, so uh, one of the reasons that that I found it interesting um, talking to you in in the cafe was um, just was your the the topic of your research, I guess. So I'm just going to, for the benefit of people listening, that uh, Sam has said to me that she explores the uh, intersection of gender, race, and sexuality in colonial India, and I'm like, oh, that's big. <laughs> And um, so I just wondered if you could sort of break that down for people um, out there listening on YesFM this morning. Um, on what kind of particular things interest you about uh, gender, race and sexuality and um, where did that interest come from? Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so first of all, uh, I'm interested in 
the way gender as a category of analysis is formulated. Uh, too many people think uh, that gender and sex are two interchangeable uh, words, which they are not. Uh, and it's important to be conscious of that, uh, that gender is an identity that is socially attributed, socially acquired. Uh, it's an identity that is a construct, essentially. And when you start to sort of go into the history of the manner in which gender identities, uh, such as masculine or feminine, that's that's a masculine dress or a feminine dress or a masculine role and a feminine role, when you start to go into the history of that, um, there's just a treasure trove of um, a history of identities, uh, that one falls upon, and especially when you try and understand that in a colonial context, uh, what does it mean to be, for example, what did it mean to be white male um, and a white male soldier in colonial India, for example? What did it mean to be a native, quote-unquote, uh, native uh, lower-class female in colonial India. So these sorts of constructs and how do they shape our understandings of the way in which two different races interact, members of different socioeconomic classes interact, members of uh, different uh, sexes uh, interact. Um, so that's pretty much, broadly speaking, uh, the area of research. Specifically, I studied prostitution in colonial India to try and understand the formulation of these gender identities uh, and what that has to do with uh, what that can tell us about, uh, you know, race as a category of historical analysis or class as a his, uh, category of historical analysis. Um, and um, as for interest, I think I became interested in India's military history by virtue of my father being in the military. Hmm. And um, the interest in trying to understand prostitution was just a result of um, a little seminar paper that I did as an undergraduate student uh, at St. Stephen's College uh, of Delhi University. Um, and yeah, my interest in gender, interest in specifically... Um, sort of the colonial policing, colonial laws surrounding sexual recreation, surrounding desire, the control of desire, uh, stemmed, uh, it basically stemmed from there, yeah. Right. That's really fascinating and another example of how, I guess, one little thing can lead to something a lot bigger, can't it? Just from oh, yeah. uh, a little paper then leading into your PhD and, and then further research that you're still uh, doing on this, this sort of topic. So what was it like then for um, – I guess what I'm interested to know is how do people actually – or how do you um, study history as in what kind of sources um, do you find, how do you find them, um, and how do they – speak to us today like in in these modern times oh that's a great question it's it's also a very loaded question but i'm going to try and do my best um so as far as sources are concerned um i know that a lot of people tend to write off history as an unscientific quote-unquote uh area of study but at a closer look one will find that it's very it's painstakingly um scientific so one tends to go into for me the starting point was to read secondary 
uh, literature, histories of prostitution, history of uh, colonialism and imperialism in India that other people have written. You take little cues from there. You go into the archive uh, in India. That would be the National Archive of India, which is in New Delhi, of course, uh, and a few other so different archives around the country, different libraries, repositories, looking for first-hand documents that were generated, uh, let's say, in the early 19th century, the late 1800s, um, under the care, of course, of the British government uh, in India. And just trying to sort of uh, look at, say, reports generated by the police department, generated by the military department, sanitation department, the public works departments, the hospitals, um so there's a whole range, a whole gamut of sources that you're dealing with. And you try to understand, in my case, specifically for my research, I try to um, try to break down, try to understand the narrative that was being presented by the government uh, when it came to certain groups of women that were labeled uh, as prostitutes, whether or not they were is a whole other uh, issue um, of discussion. And then you try to understand the manner in which the discourse surrounding prostitution uh, was constructed. For example, uh, this colonial orientalizing, mystifying lens of the Eastern woman who was seen as innately hypersexual, innately uh, devious and deviant, innately uh, unclean in her body and her mind, innately unhygienic, both at a figurative and a... Uh, literal level. Uh, so in that sort of way, these constructs start to emerge, uh, which are different from constructs uh, of uh, colonial native men. Um, and so you start to take these constructs, try to see what kind of narrative the archive has generated, what is the discourse around these women, and then try to start start to problematize this discourse. This discourse. Why would they, what political mileage do they have to derive from presenting certain groups the way they do? Um, and discourse analysis uh, in that case would be very central uh, to my research. That sounds very painstaking, yes, as you <laughs> say. I'm trying to get my head around it. Um, and uh, Your question, sorry, about um, how it speaks to us today, how it's relevant. So there was this component, one component of my uh, research uh, where I wished, I wanted to draw a comparison between colonial era laws that were used, that were rather draconian and used to regulate police and if I dare say persecute uh, women that were branded, labeled as uh, uh, prostitutes. I wanted to do a study of contemporary of a more contemporary situation, contemporary laws. And so I went into the field. My field work comprised of uh, interviewing about a 100 um, commercial sex workers in India today just to see how far we've come in a 200-year span of um, the issue. And I found, uh, to my dismay, that we haven't come very far. Uh, commercial sex workers in India are still a highly uh, deprived group with Yes, FM 100.3, bringing you the best right. of um, The Supreme Court of India just in 2022 did go as far as to um, decriminalize. It didn't say the word decriminalize, but did recognize prostitution as a profession uh, and said that they were uh, deserving of dignity as any other profession does. Um, in not so many words, I'd say that that's hinting towards decriminalization, even if we're not there yet. Um uh, so I think in modern times it speaks to us um, in this way, which is that 
in countries such as India that had a, a colonial legacy, it is important to try and uh, be conscious of the manner in which our current legal systems are in great measure just a legacy. They're just a carry forward of colonial era laws. And because of that reason, there are many high risk groups, many um, dispossessed um sections of society which have been historically disadvantaged, historically exploited, persecuted, and that exploitation, that persecution, and um, th- that doesn't change even in a more democratic, so to speak, um, uh, setup. Uh, and I think that's very important to be able to draw those comparisons and be mindful of uh, certain groups of people, sections of people, uh, especially women just falling through the cracks. Mm. And then how can knowing that help us to change those things? Oh, there's so many ways in which all these women that I spoke to, um, they are so disempowered. Uh, they are, um, it's, it's, it would be, so no care has been taken to bring them into the mainstream to give them, if it's too late for formal education, then maybe some vocational training, um, bringing these women into the, the 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 mainstream and it's the ripple effects are that then these women have children who are further pushed into the trade or have no um, viable alternatives so they will bring themselves to brothels they bring themselves to red light areas you have generations of people who are uh, sort of under the yoke of this sort of um, exploitation and uh, or the or this this quagmire and can't seem to extricate themselves on their own. So it's important for us to understand where governments are failing, uh, where uh, um, civil societies need to step in and say, you know, uh, call a spade a spade and say there are these sections of people that need to be, um, for the lack of a better word, um, rehabilitated. Mm. And do you think, at least in India, does the government have any interest really in doing that? I mean, you said before about the looking at the narrative of the women uh, back in the colonial times and that it was really interesting how you described that uh, as women being um, unclean or um, like literally and figuratively and being um, almost sounding a bit sort of dangerous or, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, something that, that, that quote, you know, doing a little quote marks with my finger that, that um, good or normal people wouldn't associate with. Um, And so that was almost like a description, you know, ancient description of women when uh, men or the patriarchal society, you know, um, are trying to keep, women in their place or, or keep them down and <clears throat> a lot of you know myths and legends about women being evil nasty witches all that kind of thing it's all part of the same story I feel and um, the way you described it was was just really quite interesting so I guess my question is why do you think the colonial Indian government described them or that was the sort of narrative of women in that way um, and if, it, if conditions haven't changed, does the government have exactly the same narrative now, do you think? Oh, that's interesting. Still, so just the first part of that question, why colonial governments should engage in that sort of um, 
uh, casting or formulation of certain people. Um, I think the colonial uh, state in India, which and not just in India, you take colonial Burma, you take colon- the straight settlements or Hong Kong, um, and there some very vibrant histories of prostitution exist for these areas today. Um, there was the great mileage to be drawn from um, using prostitution as a canvas against which to illuminate the innate immorality of the East, the innate immorality of the colonies, and thereby justifying the imperial colonial project, justifying what would be seen as the white man's burden in these societies that were just immoral and and deviant and, you know, uh, without any any values, and sort of uh, by doing that, using these um, so so called amoral societies as a foil against which then to um, uh, raise the specter of Victorian morality during the nineteenth century to say us in in Europe, us in uh, England, uh, we are more moral, we are more superior. Oh, yeah. We don't have any prostitutes in England whatsoever. <laughs> Absolutely, and which is funny, which is funny because this is the same time when certain, when some very vociferous social purity movements, which are a combination of um, movements targeting vice and fallen women, as these uh, uh, as sex workers were called, as well as temperance movements that are emerging in. Victorian England at the same time. You have Jack the Ripper walking the streets, killing prostitutes at the same time. Uh, you have Magdalene homes. Um, uh, it's quite, I mean, it, uh, the, the term itself is quite suggestive, comes from Mary Magdalene, uh, a biblical figure. Magdalene homes, which are um, meant to be rehabilitative um, institutions or reformative, uh, 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 reformative institutions for prostitutes, where they were put put through grueling work. Um, they were, these were essentially hothouses, um, uh, laundries, where sex workers, prostitutes were picked up from Whitechapel region, east end of London, and brought it into these homes, uh, made to pray, made to do laundry, um, and that sort of thing. So it's not as though prostitution doesn't exist. But when it comes to prostitution in the colonies, which, in fact, is a result of the drastic change in the socio-economic milieu of India because of the colonial encounter, because of the British coming in and these machine-made goods from um, Manchester and so on coming into India. You have um, the industrialization, uh, the destruction of a traditional cottage industry, and a lot of people find themselves dispossessed. Mm-hmm. The um, there's a great demand on the agrarian economy in India because the British are using uh, Indian agriculture to extract raw material, which they can then export to other parts of the world and back to England to produce uh, finished goods. This sort of um, and these changes are happening so rapidly during the 19th century, leading to a breakdown of traditional agrarian systems. A lot of communities, agrarian communities in the rural regions, find themselves dispossessed, find themselves falling into penury, into poverty, and then moving towards the cities. Uh, that are coming up around British cantonments, around British factories uh, in India. And so these this migrant labor, a lot of them are single men who are coming to the cities, then that creates uh, demand for prostitution. So you see how, uh, in a lot of ways, the demand for prostitution is related to the drastic socioeconomic changes in India that are wrought by um, the colonial encounter, the presence of the British Empire in India. Mm. And it just goes and on that circle. Um, and the one strand, which, which sadly, the one, uh, strand that connects 
the colonial period, the colonial view of um, commercial sex and prostitution to the contemporary is the manner in which this, the economic logic of why women enter prostitution or why women or how women find themselves in a brothel because they don't always voluntarily, voluntarily serve themselves up to prostitution. They are sold uh, by parents in states um, uh, suffering from famine. That was true for the colonial period. That's true for certain parts of India even today. If you go down to Maharashtra in places such as uh, or in Odisha in places such as Latur or Kalahandi, these are places that are ravaged by famine um, successive year on year. And women do find themselves being sold by families. Women are sold into brothels by cunning um, uh, paramours. That's true for prostitution and for brothels all around the world. But what's important for our purposes to, uh, is to understand the manner in which the economic logic, the socioeconomic reasons behind why women are, whether entering voluntarily or being sold, that gets obfuscated, that gets smudged and sort of brushed under the carpet. The only thing that's left behind is a heavy moral indictment, a condemnation of the women who are in the trade, how they got there. Why are they there? Nobody asks that question, and that's a strand that hasn't that connects the colonial uh, period to contemporary India. People are still not asking that question. Um, people still call them fallen women when they look at a prostitute or a commercial sex worker. They'd say they'll say, "Oh, that's a fallen woman. A woman that's that's an amoral woman. Uh, that is a deviant woman, right?" Mm-hmm. But how these people find themselves in the brothel in red light, uh, light districts is a question uh, that still too many people just aren't asking. Well, no, and of course it doesn't surprise me at all they're not asking. It's much easier to blame the woman, isn't it, than to Absolutely. ask, well, why is she there? And so all of these reports that you're saying that you looked at from the early 19th century about and the way you described them with the amoral women, the innate immorality and depravity and everything of, you know, like Indian yeah. society because, you know, and and like from what you're saying, they've brought it on themselves like before is there any history before colonial times of a great deal of prostitution in india well prostitution is the oldest profession in the whole world as far as india is concerned uh the first uh, documented evidence of prostitution is recorded in the vedas in the rig Ved. and there were different classes of prostitution so the the, the history of prostitution is very very ancient mm. it's not um, it's not to say that prostitution in India existed because of the British Empire. What did not exist was the criminalization, the denunciation, the mm. policing, surveillance, persecution, the incarceration of uh, these groups. So prostitution has an ancient, ancient history everywhere in the world, and uh, India is no different. Yeah. But what? But like I said, what didn't exist was the criminalization, mm. the, treating these women as a vector of disease, as a vector of um, the, you know, the the, the corruption of yeah. the social and the moral fabric. Yeah, so that is a very then, colonial. That's a that's a colonial introduction. That's a very yeah, colonial yeah. concept. Yeah. So before that, it was pretty much just a job, and then after then, it was like a, a fraught with, yeah, fraught oh, yeah. with danger. Yeah, before that, it was considered to be a, a sort of safety valve against mm. for men to let out their urges uh, to reduce, uh, you know, so that uh, the, the more um, the moral, the upper class, uh, more um, 
upper class women of domestic uh you know circles of of the more moral circles uh, would not be um assaulted would be would not be corrupted and that sort of thing they, they were considered like uh, a safety valve essentially mm. Mm, that's an interesting way to look at it um just so this morning on yasfm we've been talking with sam chahan about um well, prostitution in colonial India and today and uh, the root causes and um, why um, so many women find themselves in this situation. It's so interesting that you mentioned about the Magdalene houses because when you said fallen women, fallen woman, women, sorry, um, you know, I immediately thought of that sort of religious reference of, you know, Eve right from the beginning being kicked out of the Garden of Eden or what have you. Um, and... Just the fact that they even called them that is quite amazing. And it seems to me like they were, it was just kind of like a, a bit of free slave labor almost in those houses, a laundry service or something. Do you think the women were, were they actually safe from prostitution in those places? I wonder, you know, it's hard to say. I think from what I have, uh, everything that I have read during the course of my research, it seems that uh, such reformatories were not um did not necessarily rescue "quote unquote" women uh, from um, uh, the 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 clutches of pimps. Uh, not rescue them necessarily from the profession itself. And the economic logic is something that must be kept in mind. Women did traditionally find themselves going back again to the brothel because uh, they have to feed themselves mm. and they have to feed their children. Yes. So that's something that needs to be kept in mind. Yeah, yeah, that's always the basic thing, isn't it? So can I just go back to where you were said that you did interviewed around about 100 um, sex workers in India, in India today. I'm just interested, so mm-hmm. how did you sort of go about that to find the women to talk to and, and how did you, how did you um, find the experience? Oh, it was, um, the interviews were conducted over the course of, uh, about 10 months, uh, about 10 to 11 months, or so let's say close to a year. Uh, and I, I happened to make the acquaintance of someone in uh, the Indian city of Chandigarh, which is in, uh, what is now Punjab, uh, India's Punjab. And, uh, this, this individual, um, uh, their name is Dhananjay Chauhan. Uh, we're not related in any way, but um, Chauhan is a common surname for that part of, for, for North India. Um, and uh, uh, Dhananjay is is uh, a, a, an icon of the transgender community uh, um, for for uh, in the northwestern part of India, uh, and is quite a celebrity in, the, in, in a manner of speaking, uh, and has been campaigning for the rights of transgender groups uh, for a long time. Um, and Dhananjay had been doing a lot of work with um, people in uh, red light districts of Delhi, of Chandigarh, other parts of Punjab, uh, so on and so forth, and was also working with some non-governmental groups, some NGOs, raising awareness about HIV. Uh, distribution of contraception, uh, sex education, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and Dhananjay then became one of, one of my points of contact to enter, uh, sort of the world of, um, India's red light districts. And then one thing led to another. My sample was a snowballing sample. Uh, and I would just meet two people here. They'd give me another contact. I'd follow that lead, maybe hopefully find another two or three people, they'd give me one contact or two contacts. I'll um, 
you know, try and follow that lead as well. So a snowballing sample, a hundred people done in a matter of a year. And it's amazing to see the dark underbellies of cities. Uh, You have in Delhi, for example, you've got this wonderful metropolitan city, the capital of the country, hustling, bustling. uh, And then there's this dark underside um these women are a necessary evil and there's not just women in there there's transgenders in there there's some men in there um they are considered necessary evil that society does not want to get rid of that psychology about them being a safety valve so that moral girls from good homes are not sexually assaulted or not corrupted therefore men can go and um sort of release their uh animalistic urges in the brothel or they, you know, uh, so that sort of psychology still very much exists. So they consider a necessary evil in that manner of speaking, but at the same time treated as this bogeyman, uh, this, this um, element that must be uh, criminalized and um, condemned. Um, so it, it was absolutely heartrending many times for me to be speaking with some of them. A lot of these women, these people have HIV, um, and uh, the government does offer some free treatment, but it's very rudimentary, uh, not adequate um, by any stretch of imagination. Um, there's a small effort by the civil society groups in India, by some non by some non governmental institutions, to try and rehabilitate them, bring them into the mainstream, look after their treatments, etc. Um, but there, it's 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 not enough, mm. is how I put it. Mm. So the idea at all is, is not at all, of course, to, I guess, get rid of sex workers, but just make sure that they're treated um, in the manner befitting any one other profession. And, you know, especially given the risks that they're exposed to, especially with their health and, and, and well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they, they get it's funny because it's a nexus. You have the police who take bribes from them so that they will not then the police will say, okay, fine, give me X number of rupees uh, per month and we'll make sure that we don't raid the brothel because prostitution is still illegal in India. And even if it is um, uh, decriminalized, that's still not the same as uh, legalized. So there's a long way to go there. And until that happens, until the courts make a move on that, these people will continue to be um, exploited the way they are. Uh, there, I, I came across several cases where the police were um, involved in cases of bribery and corruption, taking money from them in order to not raid the brothel, to shut down the brothel. At the same time, they're exploited by clients. Um, they are physically abused, physically assaulted by clients. I came across a few cases where sex workers were robbed by clients after having provided them services. And they have no forum they have no fora in which to go and raise their cases uh, because the first thing they'd be told is, well, you're just a you fallen doing it anyway. person. Mm. You're an amoral person. You brought it upon yourself. Mm. Mm. It's, there's, there's no way out, is it? It's, it's, it's um, the most worst kind of vicious circle or cycle that you can imagine. Absolutely. And it will, it will continue to be until the people turn their eye, turn their gaze towards the socio-economic logic that is bringing people to uh, red light areas uh, to begin with. And that that's one thing that needs to change. And I feel like the courts really need to step in uh, to not mince their words, not say things like, uh, you know, yeah, it needs to be um, 
seen as or treated as just another profession. They need to be more specific and say, well, we're decriminalizing uh, prostitution and we are setting down a, a list of rights that uh, these people ought to have and to make those enforceable. Mm. Yeah, because they have nowhere to, to, no legs to stand on at the moment. And so was it illegal before the, or was it the colonial governments that made it illegal? Again, interesting. So India's penal code was developed in 1860 by the British. Uh, Lord Macaulay was the architect of um, the Indian penal code. And I deign to say that much of what is India's penal code today is just a legacy. Uh, we have inherited uh, the same penal code of the colonial era. And for that reason, many of these laws are draconian. Many of these laws are unjust, meant to persecute uh, and brand communities um, as criminal, uh, as, as hereditary, as, as hereditary uh, criminals. Uh, the, the Supreme Court did um, passed certain laws a few years ago, Section 377, which criminalized homosexuality, uh, was removed. Um, and so there are baby steps, uh, but I think it's just not enough and we really need to uh, kind of bite the bullet and uh, make some great strides mm. as far as fixing the legal, um, the, penal, the penal code is concerned. And are you hoping that your research... Uh, will be picked up and, and used in this way? I do believe that it will help. So there's a lot of research being produced out there. Um, in no way can I claim to be uh, a trailblazer uh, or a pioneer. There's so much wonderful research being produced by historians, anthropologists, sociologists, and um, lawyers and rights activists. Um, so it's quite a vibrant field. Uh, my effort has been to try and contribute to that with my research and go into the field, uh, speak to these uh, individuals, uh, transgenders, women, men, children uh, alike, give them a voice because I think that's the need of the hour. And in that way, I think I've tried to do my bit. I hope that my research will get noticed um, uh, for the fact that it tries to draw some, uh, it's not trying to view the colonial period or the contemporary period in isolation, but trying to establish the two as deriving um, as the contemporary period deriving from uh, the colonial era. Mm. So, like you say, it's just from 1860 a bit of a bit of a hangover. Has have I assume laws in many other areas have modernised and changed? You just said about homosexuality being decriminalised. Mm. Um, are there a lot of other areas where India's laws have modernized or do you think a lot of it is still kind of hanging over from 1860? Oh, most of it. Most of it is still those archaic colonial laws. And like I said, we're just not making uh, strides as big as we should be. We should really be looking at revamping uh, the entire penal code for India, uh, the judicial code, but um, things are just moving very slowly. And as far as that is happening, uh, there is going to be a whole series of different groups, different classes, different communities uh, that will continue to be perceived as criminal, continue to be uh, left outside of the fray of um, uh, of rights, outside the, the, the arena of rights. Um, so, mm. yeah, that's something that really needs to change and quickly. Mm. It's a massive 
thing that you're doing and, and contributing to. Um, I mean, I really hope that it, that something comes of it and that they can review these codes because it seems so hypocritical, hypocritical isn't it, of, of looking at them and, and dismissing or describing them in such ways still from what you're saying as that it's the women's fault and they brought it on themselves. Um, yet, you know, and it's like saying, well, you know, this happens but we don't have anything to do with it. But... <laughs> It's so not true, is it? Like that, even if members of the government aren't necessarily going to see a prostitute, they're they're implicitly involved by um, by oh, casting yeah. them in this light and by keeping them. I mean, that's probably deliberate. Do you not think to like keep them under under the thumb, as it were? You know, out of sight, out of mind. Because once they're brought into sight and brought into mind, you know, mm-hmm. then the 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 power it's like a power thing yeah and that's where patriarchy comes in doesn't it and it's funny how different societies no matter and this is true for western societies uh for the so-called first world this is true for eastern societies for the so-called third world whether you're looking at global north global south whatever this sort of patriarchy subtle or in your face is constantly at work now this issue of always the women being cast as the bad guy as the fall guy, and dates back, like you said, uh, quite accurately, back to um, you know the biblical figures of, of the figures of Adam and Eve. You know, Eve is the one who gets sort of uh, you know cajoles uh, Adam and cajoles him uh, to take a bite of the forbidden fruit. And in a lot of ways, she's presented as the, as the person who's responsible for his his downfall and for their banishment um, from the Garden of Eden, from heaven, from the heavens. Um, the sort of casting of women. I mean, you take the, the the Greek figure, the mythical figure of of Medusa, this woman with, with who's who's sort of this scintillating seductress with you know uh, serpents for hair, uh, always looking to get men um, uh, to 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 sort of. Um, so it's 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 a it's a constant strand. Even if you look at some of the national movements, India's national movement, for example, Gandhi himself refused to allow prostitutes, commercial sex workers, to enter the national movement. Now, we had instances in India where um, groups of these so-called fallen women um, uh, banded together and said, you know, we also want to be a part of this anti-colonial resistance movement. Uh, They marched to Gandhi and said to him, well, we're willing to make donations. We'd like to join the national movement and we'd like to uh, uh, swell the ranks of people resisting. To which Gandhi said, well, we would not like to have you as part of the movement because you make the movement look bad. <sighs> and that you are fallen women and that you must, uh, in some of his speeches, he is quoted, quoted as calling them my fallen sisters. And it is such a damning sort of representation of these people. So my my point is that even in the Gandhian era, which stood for equality, which supposedly stood for bringing India out from the colonial regime, so to speak, um, subscribed to these very essentializing notions, some very, very essentializing ideas of certain groups of people, especially women. And pretending that they couldn't be saved, that they had in fact damaged themselves, and therefore had to be excluded from from uh, one of the most historical, uh, the most historic um, 
uh, anti-colonial nationalist uh, resistances in the history of the world. Yeah, I'm just imagining now every sex worker around the world going on strike simultaneously and thinking how long then would it take for some of these laws <laughs> to be changed? Because, Absolutely. you know, like being such, as you say, um, really an, an essential service, I suppose. Although some of that makes me think, like, does it really, like you said, you know, having the women there, the safety valve, all that kind of thing to ideally to prevent the, you know, upper class or the the um the nice put it in brackets you know nice girls from being um preyed upon but it it doesn't really stop that does it because any woman will still be you know raped or attacked or what have you so um that's just it seems to be um i don't know a bit of a cop out that one <laughs> It's, it's, it's crazy. Uh, New Delhi, for example, let's talk about New Delhi, uh, has some of the largest red light districts uh, in the entire country. Uh, interestingly, most of those red light districts uh, came up, cropped up uh, as a response to the demand for uh, brothels uh, when the British Army came to be garrisoned in the Delhi cantonment in large numbers. They wanted to provide recreation for their troops, so they set up brothels uh, and hospitals in every single cantonment. Um, the British left, colonialism ended, but these red light areas are now a legacy of that period. Mm-hmm. Um, and those brothels that were once set up to service the European troops of the empire in India, then just sort of turned into uh, red light areas and brothels to service uh, Indian uh, Indian men. Uh, now, there's a lot of these. So the Delhi has some of the biggest red light areas in the entire country. However, Delhi is also the rape capital of the country. Mm. And that's it. That just explains the fact that that puts to paid uh, any any legitimacy of this idea of the safety valve. Yeah, yeah. It's it's insane. And also the fact that you say, you know, they set up the, the red light district to, for the officers or for the army, you know, British army. And um, and then they stayed. But why is it that it's the it takes two to tango, right? So the women are innately immoral and fallen women and all this kind of thing. But the men that go to use their services are completely innocent. <laughs> That's absolutely right. So in every cantonment, uh, just alongside the brothels, the British Army set up um, on the advice of the British government. Um, uh, uh, lock hospitals. Now, lock hospitals were sort of an institution, uh, a, a mix of a hospital and a jail, where uh, these women in the brothels in every cantonment. So now there were about 15 to 20 registered women in every brothel uh, in every cantonment. Um, and mind you, these are um, about 15 to 20 women servicing as many as a thousand soldiers. So the ratio is about 15 slash 20 to a thousand soldiers. Um, And there are periodic assessments where these women, they need to present, present themselves in front of the civil surgeon at the cantonment lock hospital. Um, And uh, they would then be asked to, you know, lie down. And there was the speculum, which was a probing sort of device, which would be inserted uh, into their uh, orifices and uh, to check for any syphilitic uh, infections or gonorrhea or so on and so forth. And now, interestingly, the men were allowed to come to the civil surgeon voluntarily. However, these periodic examinations for the women were mandatory. Uh, that's one. 
that they had to be, they were subjected to the indignities of mm. such probing examinations. The second thing being um, that the women, if the men came up with an infection, they were given some sort of medication and then sent home. If the women came up with medication, they were incarcerated in the log hospital, is why I said they were a mix of a hospital and a jail, for as little as two weeks up to um, two or three months until the signs of the infections had passed. Um if a woman failed to present herself before a civil surgeon for her periodic examination or missed it for whatever reason, um, she was then expelled from the cantonment, from the brothel, and then because she had fallen from the graces of the colonial government. Um, and this sort of psych- psyche, the psychology of punishing mm. this this deviant woman, punishing this woman who's a vector of disease, uh, is very, very important, uh, I think. And and, and then this narrative that the men are innocent victims to these devious women who are diseased, who are hypersexual, who are innately unclean, unhygienic, uh, and we and need to be constantly surveilled, watched out for, and then penalized. This mm. is something that continues not just in India, but everywhere. Yeah, it's it's maddening, isn't it? Um, and I mean, the mere thought of 15 women for a thousand soldiers makes me just want to burst into tears to begin with. Um, and I think, like you said, the impact on the psyche and it continues as well, like in down the generations, like this sort of trauma, you know, um, it just just continues. And it's in the it's in the very like social or our um, our societal conditioning, you know, that it just perpetuates. So I think, yeah. Um, I think it's a massive, massive thing, and I think it's fantastic that you're researching it. I'm really, unfortunately, Sam, we're just out of time because it's two minutes to eleven, believe it or not. <laughs> oh, I've wow, that part's really, crazy. really, really enjoyed listening to you, and I'm sure we could talk a lot more about it. But um, yeah, it's it's very maddening. Um, but it's great to hear that yourself and and other people are you know trying to actually get these archaic laws. Um, uh, changed in some way to protect um, the women and it can only, you know, then you would hope um, also uh, be taken up in other parts of the world as well. But, um, thanks so much for for coming on to YASFM this morning and educating us about this. I bet uh, it, you've probably opened a lot of people's eyes actually to this kind of topic. Oh, thank you very much, Kath. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you and thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome.